and welcome to episode eight of the Price Scout podcast. This is the last episode in our second four-part series. Uh, in this series, we've focused largely on planning and housing supply. We've heard from a developer, an American doctor in land economy, a lawyer, and now we're going to hear from Councillor Sharma Tatler. Hi, Sharma. Hey, yeah. Sharma is the lead for regeneration and planning in Brent, which is exciting for me because I live and work in Brent. And it's also exciting for me because a year ago, Sharma participated in the launch of a paper I wrote wearing my other hat for Network Homes uh, called Making Land Deliver, which recommended moving from the current system of developer contributions to affordable housing to a levy-based system, which has since become government policy. So I'm sure we'll talk about that a bit later. Don't forget to like, share, comments with the hashtag Priced Out Podcast. So Shama, we'll sort of kick off today with how do we look at what is the role of a, of a local planning authority and, and what roles do councillors mm-hmm. play in planning? And as you are a lead member for planning in the cabinet, it'll be probably helpful for us and our listeners as to what, what exactly does a lead member for planning actually do? Okay, so I'll start off, I suppose, with my role. So I'm the policy lead, if you like, for planning at Brent Council. Um, So that looks at obviously overseeing the team and working with my planning policy officers to establish a local plan. So in Brent, we're about to go to adoption in the the next few months of our most up-to-date local plan, which is great news for us. Also means that we are able to have specific policies around things like basements or design guides for shop fronts, um, you know, kind of area action plans. And we've got some really great ones in Wembley, South Kilburn, um, and we're coming forward with ones in Church End and Easton. So it really looks at how what our strategic vision is for planning and what we want to deliver and what planning means for us in in a local context. So it could mean, well, it does mean obviously lots of housing and how much we want to to secure housing housing policy so things around affordable housing the type of tenure family size units um, things around amenity space all those kind of things will be set in policy which is what my role oversees my role doesn't actually oversee what most people probably assume councillors get involved with which is the planning committee that's a separate side to a councillor's role so there is a separate chair of planning in brent and a separate planning committee that decide on strategic planning uh, applications that come to brent um and in brent we're kind of very if you if you know brent at all we're very much an open borough that's open to development so if you ever travel around Brent you probably see a huge amount of development going on indeed and if you come back five minutes later there'll be a bunch more it's, it's fantastic <laughs> yeah we do a huge amount um, and you know in, in last week alone we um I think gave permission to over 1600 homes in a planning committee in one night which is a part of a one public estate scheme in the north of the borough and we regularly have big applications come forward and we're not afraid by that so my role is kind of looking at strategic vision about what we want for the borough and how we deliver that. It oversees the community infrastructure levy in Brent. I also oversee planning enforcement and building regulations, which is the other side of planning that we don't necessarily talk about a huge amount, but it's a hugely vital part of what we do in planning. And also having those strategic conversations with larger developers who do come to the borough and invest, who are there for maybe five, 10, 15 years, and having that partnership role about what is it that we want for the borough? What is it they need to get out of? their scheme and how we can sort of work together to deliver a, a brilliant scheme for the borough and setting those goals and regular kind of conversations with big developers in Brent and we have those strategic partnerships as well. How does an area action plan sit within a wider local plan so sort of excuse the, 
my ignorance yeah. or the wider. So planning, so planning is one of those things that when I came to the role, I'm a teacher by background, I'm a history teacher. So planning is completely, in region is completely something that I had no clue about. And it astounds me that the levels of policy that any one area could have to follow from nationally, you have the NPPF, you have your regional plan, which in London means London plan. We have our local plan and SPDs, and then you have neighbourhood plans potentially. An area and action plan is an area that, in my mind, the way I view it, is actually a strategic document that sets out our vision for a particular area. So it really gives certainty to developers, investors, housing associations, even the council themselves about what is it that we want to deliver one particular area. So in Wembley, we've had the area action plan that's been around for almost probably 15, 20 years now, which that certainty and that policy direction has given given rise to basically three billion pounds worth of investment that's completely changed Wembley Park. And in itself, bought jobs, bought investment, bought infrastructure to the area that there was much needed. And if you knew Wembley before, before the investment, it was just a plethora of just empty man, huge sheds that didn't really do much. And it was a stadium and the arena. Now it's a, so much more and it's, it's bought vibrancy and it's the economic centre, if you will, for, for the borough. And not just because of the football that goes on in the stadium, but much more than that. These these area based plans they they kind of you're saying to the developers this is what is guaranteed to pass planning permission uh, in a, in a certain area is that how it works? Not so much guaranteed, but gives us gives a developer an idea of what we expect to come forward. Obviously, there'll be things that we obviously can't account for, which is like things like viability and kind of land ownership. But it's what we would want to see for an area in that place making area. So in say church end for example which we're currently working on at the moment it's about how we invest and support a very underused town center high street how there's particular needs because of the low wages in the in the area um, particular areas because of strategic industrial land so what is it that we want to see come forward and what would we support and we'd, we'd want to see developers applicants come to speak to us about a particular area before they even embark on putting things into planning formally but it's really like targets for example South Kilburn we're doubling the density in South Kilburn which is one of our own estates but it's guaranteed that 50% remains social housing at current rent levels and that will be part of the wider scheme so developers coming forward will we'll know that from the get-go that that's the minimum requirement. I've grown up just outside Wembley, you know, born in Northwood Park. So I've seen, like you said, the sort of immense change that has happened, particularly around Wembley Park. I've worked as, for the developer there as an investment finance manager for Queen's Hain. That's all, you know, quite exciting stuff that's been sort of quite years in the making and, and, and those relationships working well with strategic developers have been, you know, a demonstrable in Wembley Park regeneration. But can you tell us a bit more about what might constitute um, an Article 4? You, you touched on enforcement and building regulations but those are sometimes used in conservation areas or to preserve neighborhood character and i understand things like you know conversions from office to residential can be restricted and are you able just to sort of elaborate the role that you know the council plays in that and making those decisions yeah so permit development is one of those things that i struggle with because i i i feel that yes there is this place for conversion of certain type of building use so whether it's retail or whether it's um office to office to resi um but what we found in brent and this is i suppose to go to the wider question about what is it that we want planning to be and what is it planning to be for so our experience of office to resi 
conversions had meant that we were losing not only office space and valuable local independent businesses that, who had been in Brent for decades, but what we found was that the reality of what was being delivered wasn't always up to the same level of quality in terms of even just things like space standards and windows in the same way that you'd be able to guarantee and have it sort of tied down to in planning agreements. So we initially embarked and the GLA forecast, well, GLA data show the Wembley area particularly and in Brent wider, that we were seeing a huge amount of office space loss in Brent more than anywhere else probably in London at one point. And part of my role alongside planning is economic development and at that point was that employment as well. And we have 14,000 businesses in Brent and SMEs and many of them based in office blocks that have been around for a while. So how do we protect that under planning uh, regulation? So we embarked on an initial article for a few years back that looked at growth areas and protecting office to resi conversions in growth areas. So essentially it would mean stopping prior approvals and saying that if someone wants to convert an office to resi, they have to come by the planning system because we want to see good design, we want to see affordable housing, we want to see you know good base standards and, and contribution to amenity space, to affordable housing and so on. And now we've now expanded that to the whole borough. Obviously, we have to wait a year to get the Secretary of State approval, but it, it then enables us to work within a master plan context to say actually we, in this area, we need X amount of housing, but we also want this much office space, retail space, workspace, so on, because we want to create the place. So it, it's a blunt tool, if you will, in many, in many ways. And my, I suppose my concern about the upcoming reforms, well, the reforms that are in place at the moment, including the PD ability to convert retail on high streets to residential really concerns me, not because I don't think there's a, an argument to convert retail to housing because I think it can work and we've got examples in Brent where our high streets probably are far too long and actually they would be better used to convert to residential. My concern is location and quality of those conversions without kind of going through a rigorous planning process if you will. So it sounds like there's kind of two there's two parts to that. One is you support more housing coming forward, including office to resi, but you think it should be done via the planning system to ensure quality. Uh, but then the other is that you mentioned that you're concerned by the lack of office space in, more generally. Yeah. So play devil's advocate, if it's kind of the economic incentives lie with shifting it to housing, isn't it better used for housing? I think it's that juxtaposition that council local authorities have to play. We, you know, I understand completely and it's one of my manifesto commitments, it's one of my strategic objectives, we have to deliver more housing, Just it's full stop. But we also have to deliver place, you know, it, it can't just be housing solely in any particular area. And so we have to look at the quality of life that we're going to be supporting to offer residents in that locality, whether they're social housing tenants or not, it's, it, they have to be able to feel that they enjoy where they live. And that would mean obviously quality of housing and, and space standards, but also the other, other amenities that planning can secure. Um, amenity space, you know, of workspace, um, things, things that we've secured through planning, you know, medical centers and infrastructure that we need, transport infrastructure is part of my role as well, that we secure through planning. Um, improvements to things like carbon offsetting and, 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 and green design and so on. So all of those things, factors have to come into play. 
uh, London's a particularly difficult one because of the land value, because of the price around residential versus office and commercial property and value. And obviously residential will always be more lucrative to those who are applying. And, and I understand that, you know, if you're, if you're a landowner and you want to maximize your asset, you're going to want to convert to residential because that will bring you the biggest return. But our responsibility, my mind in as a council lead is say, that's great. And obviously we do want to deliver housing, but I need to make sure that my residents who do that then live there, enjoy where they live and they, they, they're able to fulfill what they want to and get the services they want in the area that they live. So it's, it's a hard position to be in. And I don't think there's an, any one easy answer. And this is why I think the government need to be a little bit more strategic in what they're doing, particularly in London. And I'm not certain that the planning reforms and the way that the current Secretary of State has been behaving is necessarily that strategic. I'm, I'm torn because I'm in, I'm in favour of anything that makes it easier to convert anything to housing. But I also live and work in Brent and I think you're doing a fantastic job. I live in a new build. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I live in a new build, presumably with one of these developers that you have strategic, strategic partnerships with. It's great. New, new stuff is going up all the time. I worry that things like Article 4 and even just more generally, the discretionary nature of the planning system what about local authorities that aren't as good as Brent's? Cle clearly, clearly, if stuff was changed across the board, it would make a big difference elsewhere, right? And this is where I think there's a real difficulty, in, and 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 I, I, this is where I think some of the current system, it, subject to the feelings and I suppose feelings and the kind of motivations, political motivations, are what hold some authorities back. So. In Brent, we're fairly lucky. We're a stable authority, touch wood. Um, you know, we've got a, a strong administration and we're very clear on our strategic objectives and that is able to then be rolled out via our planning team. I appreciate that in other authorities, that's not the case and the political to and fro between different, different administrations makes planning a real, real football. I've seen friends who are councillors in other parts who've worked solidly to get local plan in place, but then being... At the next election being um losing the election be because the opposition have campaigned to not to throw out the local plan or to throw out saying this development here you know um which is why i, I appreciate the need for a bit more strategic and sort of um reform how do you eliminate that bit of i suppose almost nimbyism it, in, in a way and, and looking at what is it that an area particularly needs in terms of strategic objectives and what housing needs they have um, and how we involve local voice in that. I think that's the key question. I, I wouldn't want to lose local voice. It can be something that's really difficult to manage um, and you've got to be kind of tough, thick skinned. I mean, some of the stuff that I get about any development that comes through through planning committee um, but then give it a couple of years and then once the developments come forward, people forget about the objections they had originally. How so do, how do I consult on, or how do you hear local voices in area action plans or local plans? Do they, do they get a say then? Yeah, so we, we've, I've really pushed uh, in Brent to make sure that our master plans, our housing zones, our are really, you know, involved as much as they, can be with the local community and even things on private land um, we've asked the developers to varying degrees of success about making sure they involve the community so 
our one in Neasden, for example, and Church End, which are the ones that are coming forward most recently, we've used online platforms, we've used, you know, leafleting, we've gone out to residents about speaking to them about what they want for the local area. Um, and that's pretty much, that's worked really well. We've, you know, in South Kilburn, we leafleted back in 2016 when we redid the SPD, um, over four, like hundreds of homes and we had over 600 responses back into this the review of the SPD and it's and it's worked really well because people then know what to expect difficulty I think comes along when people want to change their minds yeah <laughs> or those that don't agree with the policy or they don't want to see their area change and therefore then it becomes a very much hyper local we are we know we need housing but not here because it's going to change the way I live or the way that my community or my neighborhood is. I don't know if there's more to be done in terms of local authorities about talking about the benefits of what those changes could bring and how, how that's done. So it's difficult and I don't so, think you're so ever going to please everybody all the time either. For sure. So with the government's kind of plans for planning reform, let, let's forget about the specifics and just the broad brushstrokes. If we're talking about how to involve local people without kind of just pandering to nimbyism and holding the process up is the concept of front loading the kind of consultation to the plan making process rather than a specific development by de development is that the right direction I, I guess so I wouldn't be against that and I think the way that we've approached our local plan for example we did that uh, and we talked about residents concerns and kind of molded kind of tall building zones for example because people were worried about height and so on and density and so we've, we've, on the back of that, we've allocated areas in Brent that we can think would take tall buildings, that would take density much better than other areas. So talking about the protecting characteristics of a particular neighbourhood. I think what the difficulty will be, and I think this is not just in planning, but all areas of local government and just generally in society, where people want to be consulted about everything all the time that's happening on their doorstep. And even when you say, but you know, you were consulted, we, we talked about this, it's almost like, well, but it wasn't directly going to be there or next door to me or, or so on. So there is that juxtaposition. And I, I may sound a little bit sort of conversely here, but the area action plans that we have put in place, the ones that are already established and are being worked on, have resulted in actual not a huge amount of kickback from residents because they know that things are coming. So South Kilburn, for example, even Wembley, which draws still draws some attention because there's so many high rise being built. Most people know that that's coming because that's what we've, we've agreed for for such a long time. So it's not unusual that we're seeing developments coming forward. And so people are now saying, well, actually, we get it, but can we have security around parking or amenity space or things like that, which is specific to a development or a scheme rather than the kind of principles around um a master plan. Can you tell us a bit more about how neighbourhood plans work or on a more local thing? And I'd love to hear what you, you your, your opinion <laughs> Ruben, um, as a supporter of street votes. Uh, I'm a bit on the fence. But yeah, I, I can see I can see why they're attractive and I can see why they're appealing to a local authority, to a particular neighbourhood. And we've got two in Brent that have been adopted, two neighbourhood plans that have been adopted. And the most recent one being in Harleston, and it's been great, our planning policy team have been working with the ward councillors, with the neighbourhood there, who are really keen to see investment um, and development come to Harleston. And that's something that we really want to see, because in my mind, 
enabled plan should be about a discussion about how you want to see your area grow. Difficulty is, is that when you have a neighbourhood plan that limits that ability, that limits that aspiration, and it basically says no to everything that comes forward. But in addition to that, it also depends on the personnel who are involved in those neighbourhood plans because they can quite easily change and then the local authority is stuck with that neighbourhood plan if people then who initially brought that forward then change. And it, it, it becomes an unnecessary foot, political football, yep. which actually I don't think was the intention of neighbourhood plans. I think it was supposed to give a guideline about what could happen in an area if everyone came together. I think I, I think I broadly agree with all of that. I mean, they, the, the concept of people coming together locally and deciding what gets built and, and what kinds of things get built and what it looks like, that's great. But deciding whether it gets built is absolute, should never be the prerogative of Yeah, of local and I people. think some of the early iterations of neighbour plans were very much protectionism about their particular neighbourhood. And, 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 you know, we've had some difficult conversations with one of our neighbour plans, neighbour forums, because it, it's become the forum itself has become split you know and it's how much legal power then the council has to disband or kind of make changes it's very difficult so I think any neighbored plan has to start on the basis of that this isn't about protectionism this is about how you see growth and investment in a particular area and what facilities do residents want beyond housing and I think if yeah. those principles are laid out very clearly at the beginning saying you know we are going to this area can take this much housing and this is much affordable what else does a neighborhood plan deli can deliver um, yeah yeah uh, uh, uh to your earlier question about street boats as well although although street boats are the kind of um london yimby uh, and variously iterated idea has been for, for listeners who don't know the idea is that uh people res residents in a street or a block can uh collectively vote to up zone or uh, allow themselves uh, a lot more planning rights to build upwards also, uh, without without having to go through permission. I, I think although it's linked to neighbourhood plans because they are both people coming together and deciding what happens in their local area, the thing about street boats is it can't ever say no it could, to, to more housing, it can only say yes. And, um, you know, I, I don't think it will be a silver bullet, but I think if, I think there is no other way to change the vast majority of London, which is one or two or three storey uh, terraced or, or, or semi-detached housing, or whatever, because that you, you know you can't you can't just buy it up and build over it. London's one of the least dense major cities in capital cities in Europe, and I think that, that the only way to do that is to find some solution to to that, that, those sorts of homes. Well, if you look to America, I mean, you know, and there's discussion of whether we're going to a zoning system and how well that work, and we've just obviously discussed that on some extent in the podcast. But you know, in those areas, they've just allowed, you know, to your point about upzoning, and for the listeners that are unaware of what that means, is they've just allowed all single-family houses, you know, your two up, two down, um, to be able to double in size, and that in effect gives everyone the right to do that should they wish to, and that density is then within the gift of that you know property. absolutely yeah to be clear I, uh, if if it were possible to do without boats i'd be <laughs> i'd be in favor of it but i think uh the the the, the street boats idea with which john myers at london yimby has put very eloquently over the years is that it's you have to achieve it politically it starts at the, on the ground with the, the people involved so i think, I think it's there's also it, i think there's a very much a cultural thing 
in Britain that's different to the Europe and different to the States in terms of what people's expectations are about housing. You know, I, I, I've had regular conversations with residents about they don't think it's right that we're building so many flats that doesn't give a quality of life. And I'm arguing, well, actually, we've got 2000 families living in temporary accommodation who are all probably all almost overcrowded. They would happily take a flat. That means that each child gets a bedroom. But we are, and we're also living in the capital city in one of the in biggest cities in the world. So we, there is an element of identification. But I think there's a very British thing about having your home and your garden and certain space and, and home ownership and, and a very cultural thing that I think that also needs to be discussed around what is it that we want? Because I think people expect in America to be dense and high. In Europe, it's all about rental economies and, and so on in a very way that it isn't that case in Britain as much I, I, I don't think and I think if we're ever going to succeed for that in London there needs to be that cultural change about how we think and view housing. It's a, a bizarre contradiction that in Britain like, as you say we're, we're keen on big houses don't like flats but we also love our green belt. <laughs> don't get me started on the green belt. But... <laughs> yeah. Well I mean just your point about you know blocks of flats and you know having now worked in the li- later living sector you know you asked any British retiree, you would expect them to say that they'd like a bungalow, right? Um, and to your point about the garden, but effectively flats are just bungalows stacked on top of each other. And if you've got the right public realm, and I think you've done that, you know, very well in, in, in Wembley, where you go to some of the new developments that they've got significant amounts of open space and parks and pocket parks and, you know, et cetera. And if we are to, to your point, culturally, move away from trying to control everything around us all the time and have a bit of faith in the sort of politically led plans, but also have faith in the developers, right? I mean, there is this kind of, you know, antagonistic system that we currently have that pits developers against local authorities and it's who's represent the the community or the market, which is effectively the buyers in the end properly. But, you know, we've got to be conscious of the fact that the evil developer trope doesn't really get the housing sector to where it needs to be of course there's parameters that need to be set and you'd hope that local plans do set those rules but at the moment they act as a guide and to your point is even if it goes through all that consultation it gets accepted um, and then it gets put into place there may be some people who all along didn't like it and will do whatever they can to railroad it they'll take you to a judicial review they'll you know the council you get political pressure on the offices and they'll push you to appeal and then before you know it they're charged with costs for acting unreasonable and all of that comes at the expense of the of the of the taxpayer and the local taxpayer anyway and got to be a way that sort of takes all the best bits from you know the strategic relationships with developers to consulting the community to getting the balance right of what areas should be for what and then i don't like the word neighborhood character but the design codes for the area that meet the local aspirations i suppose is yeah i can read i mean if you look at if you look at wembley park for example and some of the data that we've got when we speak to the developer there is that actually a lot of their properties have gone to downsizers in that 50 to 60 plus bracket who don't need a big property who have and, and properties that need fair amount of maintenance what they want is a quality built easy to use property and if you look at Wembley Park it, the amenities they offer it's not just open space but the shopping the restaurants the theatre um, access to London by you know the, the tube station so they're continuing to live the lifestyle that they want but they don't necessarily think they need a massive property to do so that it allows it free you know and it's that kind of conversation about who, who you know that cultural change bit and the, the piece around 
de develop a trade business is simply why my, my leader and I have regular conversations with our big developers because actually, you know, we understand that we don't own all the land in the borough and we have to work with those that do. And it's better to have a conversation and have them in the room with us about what we want to see delivered alongside them. And in, in one particular case, we've got a development in, in Alperton, just off the North Circular, where because of our good relationship and conversations, not only did the entire scheme go through planning in 11 months, this is a 3000 home master plan, and, and it's gone through in 11 months, plus the first phase in detail planning, but secondly, we were able to deliver all the affordable and community facilities in that first phase, and we, we secured that. And then we've used our capital budgets and asset and program to buy the section 106 from that developer. So then we, we then in control of the affordable housing and the social housing on that estate. And that's going to be delivered. And the first residents will move in actually by Christmas. And that wow. was an eight or two year plan. You know, Fantastic. And, yeah, so we, we, you know, we, it can happen, but I think it's how brave a council can, wants to be and yes. how good the relationships they form. I think, the I think I totally agree with that. So my ideal world would involve as little necessity of different actors agreeing with each other in the process, because I think in, on aggregate, it slows everything down. But I think Brent is, is probably the best example or one of the best examples of where it's worked very well so so I think that's fantastic yeah. in terms I think of that's partly because we also do our own direct delivery as well and we're very keen to so you know we're delivering over right. a thousand homes ourselves directly so you know we're not shy of it and I think my, my leader's taking a fair amount of bruising over the last decade yeah. uh, to kind of get us this place but it, it's something that we're not shy about in in terms of what's uh, looking outside of Brent to the country uh, I know you've got some issues, uh, to put it mildly, with the government's intended direction that's in the planning white paper. Um, what, 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 are your, what are your main concerns there? I've got no issues with the idea of zoning. I think that that makes sense. And in, in many ways, our local, new local plan um, sort of personifies that. What my concern is, is on one hand, the government talk about devolution and localising decision making. But then on the other hand, this feels very top down. Um, and some of the issues that we've got around, say, the affordable housing first homes uh, policy, for example, that's just another layer of affordable housing um, the product that actually just is going to confuse that whole area. My view would be streamline that, make it very simple, you know, and make it link to your local need. Um, you know, Brent's affordable housing need is very different to Kensington and Chelsea's. So why is it that we're having the same approach? same product available to, to, to those. Um, I also I also worry about the section 106 and I know that you and I, Ruben, you and I probably differ a little bit on this, but I, I, a sweeping away from section 106 um, for me without any conversation about replacement um, is worries me a little bit. You know, authorities like mine, we use Section 106 to really fulfil some really important employment ambitions so around transport that specifically to that scheme. And I think, I know the levy could do that, but my concern is that the way levy's been used currently may not always deliver what you Section 106 delivers. So I think there needs to be a little bit more conversation around that. Uh, and what I'd like to see is the government really look at viability. Um, there is never any talk about viability. So we, you know, 
most councils have a 50% affordable housing policy. Yet I don't know very many schemes are able to get to 50% because viability and land value is not talked about. I would argue so, that the conversation about an infrastructure levy uh, is exactly talking about viability. So I appreciate Section 106 delivers a lot of affordable homes and a lot of other stuff, mm. uh, but I don't know whether this is your experience in Brent, but you know, like you said, your, your, your policy, a council's policy might be 50% affordable. And then a developer comes along and says, uh, okay, I can build 35% affordable. Then uh, the, the council goes, goes back and says, that's okay. And then two years later, they say, oh, things have changed. We need to actually deliver just 15% affordable. Um, and, and, and very often you have homes that are delivered without any contributions at all. Well, what a levy would do is make it developers' profits that are the things that can flex rather than affordable housing contributions would be my. Well, I think there's also, there's, if I, if, the way that I've understood planning to work and what my team do, Brent, is that there, there is the ability to, do, to, to pin and review those, those obligations every couple of years with developers. So we're able to pin facts. If, if actually the profit margin has changed and they could deliver more, um, then we expect that to happen and we're able to pin that within the agreements that we make. There is no conversation about they're less than what's been agreed. Um, my only concern is with, with the fast track, which has enabled us to get things delivered very quickly, which is great, but the majority, 35% affordable, which is good, but how much of that is genuinely affordable to residents in Brent? And that's the conversation that we end up having a difficult conversation about, about the 80% of market rent or the new first homes product. That's not affordable for in Brent, you know. Um, so I think there's an element of what is actually there at the moment that could, what levers councils have and planning system has that isn't being used well enough so you know we've had conversations with developers who don't like the fact that we can review every few years their profits and therefore get more affordable later on than just the base that was agreed initially in planning um and how well that's used beyond other authorities i don't know um but i think it, i think there is a conversation around levy and, and seeing what that what that could mean um I mean, in my, in my mind, the you know, as a developer, the, the, the late stage reviews obviously play can play a role where there's, you know, an agreement that's necessary in that regard. But you know, for 50% affordable housing, you, there's never you never see a local plan that's mapped out based on land values of the area. So mm. if there was that uh, sort of element undertaken, you'd be able, you know, if there is a I don't know a retail unit, an old Wix or something, that's worth 12, 13 million quid, or an old Debenhams, or you name it, right? Yeah. Well. To what extent, you know, the, the 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 viability stacks up? It is based on the market. You've got the market sale. There's an element of percentage that's affordable, and then there's the cost of the build. Yeah, that pops out the land value. So, and there's obviously a profit margin that's involved, and it's kind of you can push the value. You can say fifty percent, but then the van value that you'll be able to pay for that development will be below the existing use. So then the housing never gets built, and that's where, in my mind, and you know, I've probably taken more. Um, you know, market driven view on this i while i think it's a, a happy medium to have affordable housing if we what you then end up doing is you end up just pushing up the market value units to compensate for these mm. things like social housing is something that we definitely need i think we can probably all agree on that it's just that the government um is you know not prepared to fund it and when you have a, a valuation of a um of a social housing unit and let's just say it will be in the region with its income generation, probably like two or three percent yield, right? Or something like that. You're never going to get 
you know, the, the bill cost is generally going to be higher than what it's worth valuation wise, unless you can repay it off over 60 years. And when you put debt on that, et cetera, et cetera, it becomes mm. very difficult. So the government needs to find ways to subsidize it. And in the past, they've used grants, um, but they're never prepared to give it to private developers, never understood that. And, you know, while in America, and I've, I think touched on this before, you know, I'm always a big fan of the low income housing tax credit, where they actually allow private developers subsidy to, 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 to deliver it on site and manage it uh, as they should. And I think housing associations who, uh, you know, no offence, whether or not you work for one, who over the years have always been given subsidy, have never really innovated in this space and are, you know, lack accountability compared to, say, a local authority who, who are accountable to their electorate. And yeah. the government really needs to have a wholesale shake-up of how do we fund social housing for those yeah. on those. I, you know, I, 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 know I, completely, I completely agree. And I, I, I love the idea of that kind of tax credit policy idea in terms of delivering more housing I think that would be an incentive that we don't use or haven't used at all at the moment and the, the current grant the way that the government have made changes to the current grant system is really going to mess up it's going I mean, we've been having discussions with the mayor of London and his team and yeah. the deputy mayor about this London has been screwed hasn't it yeah the leveling up agenda means rather than bringing other other areas up is taking away from London and it's you know we've got housing stock that's coming to its end of its life and we need to replace it and what we're replacing it with is what we need bigger family units more and actually densifying particular areas and now we can't access grants to do that there was never a sliding scale for grant process so you get the same amount of grant you would for a one bed as you would for a three bed and that just isn't isn't sustainable so yeah, the grant system needs to be looked at completely. And I think I, there needs to be more conversations with developers to see what incentives they need to bring more affordable housing. Because I do agree, supply is the key is the key thing mm. here. Clearly, clearly grants need to be a lot higher um, and distributed a bit more intelligently. Uh, I, I know, you know, Chris and I have debated this on previous episodes uh, in both series, but in terms of developer contributions more generally, like clearly, uh, the more affordable housing you require and the stricter that is, that that will prevent some homes being brought forward. Um, that, that, that's obvious, but uh, I, I look at it like this. If, sure, uh, let's have loads of grants, but by uh, increasing the amount and uh, rigidity of what developers are expected to pay, what you're actually doing is just exactly as you said, Chris, you're, you're taking money off the land value uh, and, if uh, sometimes the land might be used for, for something very productive right now, but, of, but often it won't be. And so if the land value falls, what you're actually doing is just taking money in the form of asset wealth away from people who don't need it and probably haven't earned it. Uh, and you're giving it to people in the form of better housing outcomes. Mm. I think the other, the other difficulty we've got in London is, so Brent, for example, is a borough under the London plan. It's going to be an industrial enhanced borough. So we're expected to not only uh, protect the industrial sites that we've got but actually provide more capacity um, for it and so where we have potential to do some really innovative work around mixed development about more residential looking at what future industrial will look like we've been expected to say protect those and there's been a very it's been a difficult conversation about actually what is it that we need to be having a conversation about strategically about what industrial land we need in the, in, in in London uh, and can that be better utilized in some of the poor quality land that's on the edge around the m25 that could be better utilized for industrial sites rather than sites within the center of london um 
that could could be used for housing um, or you know infrastructure that's needed. So it's it. I feel that we're not having a good enough conversation about the southeast as opposed to just London, and, it, and the M25 kind of constrains us hugely about what we could do within London. Absolutely, I couldn't agree more. I think the, the southeast has and its inability to build and. The, the government's reluctance to really make them deliver any meaningful, you know, you look at places like Epping Forest who um, have been, you know, crippled, but they haven't even put things through planning system as a result of their unwillingness to put it, you know, allocate a clean air zone and their local plan hasn't been adopted. And if they don't adopt the local plan, then they'll have to end up doubling the amount of houses. But all of those external, you know, barriers around the Southeast being incapable of delivering enough homes means that London has to, you know, has always insurmountable pressure, really. Mm. And I don't know, what's your thoughts about beds on sheds then? You were touching on industrial there, Shab. I don't really know if it's a concept that's really managed. So, if you mean by beds in terms of sort of manufacturing sheds and so on, um, I am not against the idea of mixed development and looking at, you know, kind of building on top of industrial and, and and densifying that because i i don't see why particularly if you're near a good transport hub why not you know um we've got a site in staples corner for example which is off the edgeware road which sits right by the m1 right by the edgeware road right close to the m4 so north circular so in terms of connectivity it's fantastic but it's in protected industrial land and actually sits right next to a residential so they could be graduated schemes and kind of really designed led schemes about what could be done there we've got on the grand union development which we you know worked with, with the developer and the developing been fantastic in actually having a really modern way of looking at industrial sites so it was old park royal what they've done is they looked at modern industrial sites they took an idea that i think was from germany and stacked the industrial floor space into onto six floors onto one corner of the site so replacing the entire square footage that was there previously as well as some dotted industrial sites within this light industrial within within the development with good sort of access for vans and lorries on the ground floor and basement but it'll be a really innovative what we call the generator building which sits right on the north circular so you won't even impact on parts of the rest of the borough but it means that there's been a really different way of looking at protecting that industrial site in park royal but as well as using the wider landscape to deliver 3,000 homes as well as a new community centre, et cetera, et cetera. So it, it's how the GLA are going to be open to those conversations, and they seem to be open to that, um, but it's whether they're willing to do that much more wide scale. They'll do it on the, on the odd site here and there. It's whether they can do it consistently to help deliver that. Fascinating. Yeah. And I, I don't know whether there's enough conversation about what, what future industrial looks like either. I think we're still very much concentration on big sheds that employ six people um, because that looks like industry industry where actually is that modern industry is that 21st century industry I'm not certain and I don't think there's enough conversation about that I think that's a really good point I could talk um, about this for ages yeah 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 <laughs> fantastic well we're running out of time now so thank you very much to Sharma Tatler and Chris Worrell and all previous uh, guests on the show and all listeners this has been series two and we will be back later this year. Um, don't forget to like, share, comments, retweets, all the rest of it with the hashtag PricedOutPodcast. Brilliant. Thanks.